Um, so this week, Parshat Vayira is filled with lots of amazing things. Uh, Vayira begins, of course, with Moshe's, Hashem's speech to Moshe, reassuring him and giving him, uh, should we say, an adrenaline push to go back and speak to B'nai Yisrael after the disappointment of the first address to Paro. Uh, and the famous uh, terms of Geula, which we know, but maybe don't know that all that well, and of course, uh, and um, and Moshe being Aral Sfatayim, all of these are topics that we've covered in earlier years. And then, of course, the Makot gets started. And the Makot, both individualistically, individually and uh, as a sequence, have their own fascination. Uh, we've talked in the past about the Khartoumim, uh, but towards the beginning of the parsha, there's this strange sort of square peg in a round hole that shows up, uh, which evokes a little bit of the end of Breshit and a little bit of the beginning of Shemot and a little bit of Parsha Pinchas with, uh, or the beginning of Bamidbar with the census, a little bit of it, and it's almost like a teaser. But at the end of the opening section, when Hashem gives the four or five phrases of Gula and tells Moshe to go. And uh, and then we have the following. So we'll take a look at it. This is the end of that section. I just want to do it for the give context. And this is something we hear over and over from the end of Parsha Shemot, coming to Paro and giving the message, and which is, of course, the, that he should send them out. And of course, what is Aral Sfatayim? Okay, but with that background, we then have what ends up in our tradition, the end of the first Aliyah. Right, and it gives the command. Now, following this, um, this odd passage you have the odd passage we're going to focus on you have which is almost exactly repeat of sukim yod through yod bet that we just read and this is where we have an example we have a couple of cases like this in brishit where the text veers off onto a tangent and then sort of does a recap of where we're at, where we're at. At the end of last week's episode, here's what we did. So to bring us back into the flow, example of this is Breshit Lamed Zion and Lamed Tet. And the end of Lamed Zion has Yosef being sold to Potiphar, and Lamed Tet reminds us that we sold to Potiphar because we have the whole story of Yudav and Tamar in the middle. So the same way we have our odd section in the middle. And here it is. Eile Rashev Veitavotam. And by the way, right away you could ask, besides what's this doing here, Beta Votam of whom? There's no context. You know, as if it had said, um, So these are the heads of their families, or the heads of their households, of whose? Now, it's pretty clear from the rest of it, they're talking about B'nai Israel, but that's where it gets doubly weird, because... We start with Reuven, B'nei Reuven b'choy Yisrael, Chanuch u'falu chatzon v'chami, elam mishpachot Reuven. So this is not all the members of Reuven at this time, not by a long shot. We're, all members of Reuven, we're talking in the tens of thousands. But this is rather the heads of households that these people are no longer alive. These are the sons of Reuven 
who were listed back in Breshit with the group of the family that came down, the tribe, mini tribe that came down from Canaan with Yaakov, those are the same names. So now they're not individuals, they're not little kids, they are the families, the Chetron family, the Kami family, etc., Uvnei Shimon, and again, the same list, Yumuel v'yamin v'od v'yachin v'tzohar, v'sho'u ben akranit, exactly like we had in Vayigash, Eilu mishpachot Shimon. Now, why is this list here, and why is this list replicating what we saw in Breshit, is, it, is its own question. But the stranger part is that here we feel like we're continuing that list, and then we have the larger question what it's doing here, the Eile shmot b'nei levi l'toldotam. Gershon Ukat Umirari. And at this point, we're still in the same Vayigash mode. And suddenly we get a new piece of information. Levi lived till 137. This is not something we heard earlier, because by the way, Levi is still alive earlier, although the Torah certainly could have told us how long he lived. Here we're told he lived 137. And then we veer off further from the Breshit model. Which is Bnei Gershon Livnim Veshimin LeMishpachotam, and then Uvnei Kahat Amram VeYitzar VeChevron VeUziel, and again Uvnei Chayei Kahat Shaloshus Loshim Miachana. So first of all, we get Gershon's kids, right? We we did not have in in Breishit. We get Kahat's kids, we did not have in Breishit, and then suddenly we tell we're told that Kahat lived 133. We're not told how long Gershon lived, and going back one step, we're not told how long Ruvain or Shimon lived. But we're told how long Levi lived, and we're told how long Kahat lived. Now, to finish the picture, Good, very nice, wrapped up, and we expect now to hear about Yehuda. Don't hold your breath. Suddenly in Pasuk Chaf, And now, by the way, we're going to find out who the unnamed father and unnamed mother of that baby who ended up getting named Moshe who they are. It's Amram, who, as we saw a second ago, is one of the children of Kahat, evidently his eldest. And he took Yocheved Dodato, which means Yocheved is his Dada, which means his father's sister, which means she is directly a daughter of Levi, as we saw, Bat Levi. Right, so now it's kind of filling in the blanks from the earlier story of of the birth of Moshe, and tells us that besides the unnamed sister who was there, whose name we're still not going to get here, uh, there's a brother there who we're not, who we weren't told about earlier. We've been told about him since, in the interaction at the Snan afterwards, but not in that birth story. And then we're told again about an age, uh, a span of years, and that is Amram. So we're told Levi 137, Kahat 133, Amram 137, right? And now, Uvnei Yitzhar, We're told Yitzhar, remember Yitzhar is one of Kahat's kids, Kahat's second kid. So Amram, we're told that he has Aaron and Moshe, and he married Yochavet. Yitzhar, we're told, he has kids who are Korach, Nefeg, and Zichri. Uvnei Uziel, notice, there's no Bnei Hebron here. We're not going through the list comprehensively. Amram, we were told about Aaron and Moshe, not told about Miriam. We're also told Abram's wife. Yitzhar, we're not told who his wife is. We don't know if he has daughters, but we're told about three sons, Korach, Nefeg, and Zichri. Hebron is skipped. And Uziel, we're told, Mishael, Ve'el, Safan, Visitri. Three sons. Okay. 
And now we continue on with this strange zigzagging information, which is both odd in its existence, odd in what it states and what it leaves out, and even in its sequence. As if we should have heard about Nachshon already. So Nachshon, who is the son of Aminadav, who is from Shevet Yehuda, but we're not told that here, is has a sister named Elisheva, and Aharon marries Elisheva. Right? And by the way, we already know that Moshe married Sipporah, and we already know that he has one son, Gershom. We'll find out later about Eliezer. Okay, so the family's filling out. By this time, we've even forgotten about the fact that there's a Yisachar and a Zebulun and a Yehuda and Naphtali and Dan. We've forgotten about everybody else. Which means that when we finish this, we got to look back and say, what is this whole thing about? So now, um, suddenly we're switching back and going to Yitzhar's grandsons. Amram, we got some grandsons, which was our own four kids. Yitzhar, we're going to get some grandsons, which is Bnei Korach. Now we're not getting Nefeg's kids or Zichri's kids, but we're getting Korach's kids. Asir ve'alkanava v'asaf. That's the Korach family. And we're done with that. And then we go back to Amram, and we now get a great-grandchild. Right, this is now Aharon's son, Elazar, who we heard about, son number three. He marries one of the daughters of a guy named Putiel. There's the Midrashim about Putiel, but Sebop Shad is a guy named Putiel. Now, did Nadav marry? Did Avihu marry? We don't know. Did Itamar marry? Almost assuredly. Did Elazar have any other kids besides Pinchas? We don't know. So we're told about Elazar only, and we're told about Pinchas only. Now that line is a little bit unfair, because what's Ela? means these are the heads of the Levite families, but is that true about Nefeg? Is Nefeg the head of a family? Is uh, is uh, Pinchas the head of a family? Who's the Ela referring to? All right, and I'm just pointing out along the way there are so many odd things here. But this is a parsha. Zevi and I were talking about this before the shiur. This is a parsha that is often overlooked because it's such a uh, like a, a strange piece in the middle of the Yitziat Mitzrayim narrative which is about Moshe and Paro and Makot and Moshe's speech and signs and wonders. And suddenly we get this genealogy. And it's so strange that often what people do is they look at it and they kind of like, it gives me a headache to think about it. I move on to something that I'm more comfortable with. And then we get to the end of this passage. Who Aharon Moshe? That's a strange thing to say because it should be Hema Aharon Moshe. But who Aharon and Moshe seems to mean that's the same Aharon and Moshe. Right? So this is the summary of this piece, which is they're the ones talking to Paro to take B'nai Yisrael and Yitzrayim. That's Moshe and Aharon. Aharon and Moshe, Moshe and Aharon. Beautiful. And then that's the end of that. And then the next parasha takes us back to where we were before. Hashem says to Moshe, go. So it's as if we have the following, just the gadol. Hashem speaks to Moshe and tells him to go to Paro. 
And this is the message you're supposed to give. If you remember, we were already told that Aharon is going to be Moshe's spokesperson, not only to Zikne Yisrael, but also to Paro. And then there's this interruption with this weird half-third genealogy that gets expansive in some places and gives us spans of years in some places, and then drops after Levi. We don't hear about anybody from any other Shevet, except for the fact that we know that, I mean, that was from Yehuda, but that's it. And it goes through the bona fides, if you will, about Aharon and Aharon's sons and Aharon's grandson and Moshe and other members of the family. And then it drops. And then we go back to the narrative. I am sure that all of you in the past have looked at this and said, I don't, I don't get what this is doing here. But then got so preoccupied with Dam and Sfardeh and Kinim etc., that uh, perhaps you dropped off. So we'll take a look at, a, at how a couple of the Rishonim addresses. I'm going to start with Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says, in the introductory line, he says, Shav el Yisrael haniz karim lamala. He says, this is going, who's the Avotam? It's going back to Bnei Yisrael, who are mentioned earlier. Now, somebody, I don't know who it is, in parentheses put in that it's referring to this Bnei Yisrael right here. But maybe not. Maybe the Ibn Ezra is refer, says that it's referring to this, the beginning of the book. Or any of the other mentions of Bnei Yisrael in the meantime. And saying, okay, and now we're going to fill in who the who the heads of the families are. And he points out again, these are the ones who came down to Mitzrayim. And then he points out, it starts with Reuven. Now, of course, before we get to the Ibn Ezra, and look into the to the Kishkas of Ibn Ezra, we we part of the problem with this list is not only that it's in, incomplete, but where it starts. It starts with Ruvain, then does Shimon, then Levi, and stops. Now, instinctively, why why would it be Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi? What would be your first thinking about that? Why wouldn't it be Yehuda, Naphtali, and Levi? Why is it Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi? No, order of birth. What? It's starting for the order of birth. First order. So we start with Ruvain, who was the Bahor, and yet turned out to be quite the Gornish relative to everybody else, and got tossed out. Then it goes to Shimon, who along with Levi also got tossed out. So, yes, it's birth order, but on the other hand, it's not in any order of significance, meaning they're not the most significant tribes by any measure. So notice what the Ibn Ezra is, is sensitive to that and says, Hechel mi Ruvain, he started with Ruvain, lo nishar lo kavod rak The only kavod Ruvain had was to say, officially I've got the big B on my back. I'm the Bechor. That's about all I got. Right? And Spasukhi Divaramim, I'll show it to you in a second. Ve'elar bar panav hem yorde Mitzrayim. So Chetzron, Kami, etc. The four that are listed are the ones who came to Mitzrayim. Right? And then he says, one of these families got disappeared. And therefore, they're not mentioned in Pinchas, okay? And he goes through, and uh, and then he says, Bnei Levi. He's Levi. Why were Ruven and Shimon mentioned before Levi? Because the Ibn Ezra is clear. It's clear to the Ibn Ezra, like it's clear to anybody else, that this story, this piece is about Levi. It goes into details about Levi, gives spans of years of Levi and Kahat and Amram. It's about Levi. So why Ruven and Shimon? Because Ruven and Shimon are older than Levi. To which our response has to be, so what? And then he says, Ki Levi hu ha'ikar. Levi is the main thing about this. 
Because the whole purpose of this is to tell us who Moshe and Aharon are, to give us the yichas. You know who Moshe and Aharon are descended from? Ho, ho, ho. Right? Very nice. But is that enough of a reason to put Reuben and Shimon in here? All right? And then he says it mentioned Gershon Katu Murari because they're they're also mentioned by Yigash. All right, and said, Why does it tell us how long Levi lived? And then you would translate, add that. Why does it tell us how Lakahat lived, etc.? Just for honor of Moshe and Aaron. All right, again, the Yechus of Munu, you see who Moshe comes from. His great great grandfather was, his great grandfather was a guy who lived 137. His grandfather lived 130. His father lived 137. It's great. Okay, so here, here's the basic Jason questions that we have, right? Which is, um, why is this genealogy presented here at all? Why did it stop at Levi? Why are only specific people mentioned and not others? Again, I asked this earlier. And the lifespans of those three are listed. Why? So I want to take a look at what a couple of other passages that may enlighten us. We saw it in, in, uh, in Breshit. Again, this is the same list. You saw B'nai Ruvain, the same four, B'nai Shimon, the same five. Right, but they the same three, all clear. We also have at the beginning of our parsha of, of say for Shemot Veilus Israel. So that may be the background for this. But again, what's the connection? So I'm going to take a look at four other comments here, and then I'm going to suggest something else. Uh, and by the way, there there are many. This is again a sign of how mysterious and odd this parsha is. There are perushim all over the place on it because it's enigmatic. What's it doing here? So the Rashbam says, he quotes a Mechilta, although I couldn't find the Mechilta, it's in the Pirkei Rebbe you can find it. It says, Reuben Shimon Levi were the three Shvatim who didn't get a bracha, they got a Mishabarach from Yaakov. Right? Reuben Pachas Kamayim, Shimon Levi Achim, Klei Hamas, etc. So this is like rehabilitation. Reuben Shimon Levi got really nailed in the uh, in the deathbed scene of Yaakov. So here, it's like kind of restoring their honor. And he takes a position sort of like the Ibn Ezra, which is the need was to be miyaches up to Moshe and Aaron because they're the core, right? And therefore, we start Reuven, Shimon, and Levi because that's the order. I'm going to later pick up a, 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 pay, a, a leaf from this tree that the, the Rashbam is, is planting. It says Korach and Uziel's son and Pinchas are mentioned later in the Torah. That's why they had to be mentioned here. But I think we have to take this a little bit further. Um, the the B'chor Shor takes it a little bit broader. And he says, This is now recapping and what they're supposed to do. So it says, here's who we're talking about. Who are the families, who are the heads of the families. So the Reuven, Shimon, Levi, once we get to Levi, let's go down. To Moshe and Aaron, and Bnei Aaron, and even Aaron's grandson, right? All of these people, in other words, in order to sort of recap the story and tell us who is it we're dealing with, who is this Bnei Israel that Moshe has to convince and then lead out. 
but it stopped after Levi. And then he quotes Rabbeinu Shmuel. And Rabbeinu Shmuel here means um, evidently Mishmuel ben Chofni. Um, Why? Remember, I mentioned Hebron's left out. We had Bnei Korach, right? And we had, sorry, Bnei uh, Amram, uh, Amram, and Uziel, um, and uh, but we no no mention of Bnei Hebron, right? Maybe they weren't important people, right? Sorry, Rabbeinu. Um, they just don't show up anymore. And so this is again what the Rashbam says, that the people who are listed here are people who show up later in the story. And therefore, Korach, for instance, and Korach mentions his other brothers, right? And Bnei Uziel, we'll see why. Um, the, the tour, by the way, the tour, just to give a little plug for the tour, the, the tour is chiefly known in the area of Parshanut as the author of the Balaturim. That's why he's called the Balaturim. He's the tour. He wrote the tour. But the Balaturim wrote two commentaries. There's one that's very popular, which is very short, and it's basically Gimatriot and Sofetevot and all sorts of other uh, interesting devices with all sorts of hidden messages. And it's popular because it's printed in most of the Mikrogadolot, because it's small. The tour, on the other hand, wrote a comprehensive commentary, which is called the Long Tours Commentary, uh, which is really very deep stuff. And it's in very much in the tradition of the Tosafist school of, of Parshanut, which is fascinating uh, material. And he says, <laughs> The whole point was to get to Levi. So in order to make sure nobody thinks Levi is the Bechor, they went in order, Ruben, Shimon, and Levi. But the point is to get to Levi. Right? And he continues on. There's other things that are of interest here, but I'm I'm keeping on the clock because I want to get us to there. And then somebody who you've never seen me quote, Kleakar, 16th century, I believe, has the following very fascinating take on this. But this shows you how challenging this Parsha is that that again we have to take a look and try to figure it out watch where he goes god wanted to give this famous based on the famous agada and shabbat that god gave the threefold torah that's torah tuvim to the threefold nation, Kohen Levi Israel, on the third day of Hagbalah, through a third, Moshe was the third in birth order, as all the thirds. So he, through the third tribe that had all of these threes in them, right? So Ruben has four families. Shimon has five. What's four and five? That's nine. And Levi, three. Oh, therefore, we finally found Levi. Levi's are three. Now, you could have stopped and said, there's 12. And we love the number 12. Instead, he goes, So instead, he comes to Levi, who Levi is not only the third, but Levi's also got three kids. Right? I, I just, just want to give you a sense of how far afield people are willing to go in order to explain this very strange parasha. 
I think that there's something else going on in this parasha. And I want to take you, as I said, a page from the Rashbam and from the Bechor Shor, who said the people who are singled out for mention here are people who show up later in the Torah. That's why Mishael and Al-Safan play a role so they get mentioned. And let's take a look at those mentions. But I think it's also going to explain another piece that wasn't ex wasn't explained with that, which is why Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi are here, and none of the other tribes are mentioned. It's not just order, it's something else. If you take a look back at Moshe's formative present, the presentation of Moshe's formative years, that's when he's in Egypt, he's growing up in the palace, and he hasn't yet run away. And if you recall, the first day he goes out to see his family, as he was happening to his brothers, and he sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew, and in Ivrim, Moshe intervenes, kills the, the Mitzri, buries him after looking around to make sure nobody's watching. What happens the second day? He comes out, and he sees two Ivrim fighting, and he says to one guy, We're familiar with that. What do they say to him? Who made you a judge over us? Now, by the way, they're talking to the prince of Egypt. I know, because that's what the movie's called. And yet they say, well, who, who put, appointed you? And this is something that Moshe is going to experience for the rest of his career. People not accepting Moshe's place and his role. Who are these two people? So all we're told is two Ivrim are Nitzim. Interesting, Chazal says it's Datan and Aviram. That's in source 10. Whether it's Datan and Aviram is not the point. The point is that Moshe faces these sort of challenges, but the Midrash here is actually speaking on a much deeper level, as we'll see. Now, when are Mishael and El Safan, the children of Uziel, who get mentioned in this list, when do they show up? When Nadav and Avihu die, and Elazar and Tamar take over for them, and they're all listed there. Mishanel and Safan are the two Levim who come in and drag the bodies out. So as this is substantiating what the Rashbam, the B'choshor said, is that those people who later on are going to show up in the Torah, we want to know who they are, so they're listed in this mini-genealogy. Okay. If you remember, the Menezra started out by saying Ruvain is only listed as a B'chor because that's his birth order. He has no other Yichas. And that's the Pasuk that he referenced here in Divrei Amim. Meaning, Yosef got the rights of the Bechor, but he just doesn't get called Bechor. That's what Ruvain. Ruvain's Bechor in name only. Okay. But now let's take a look. Who are the rebels who really give Moshe the toughest time? Korach, Ben Yitzhar, Ben Kat, Ben Levi, back to our list, and Datan and Aviram, Ben Eliyav, Von Ben Pelet, all of them who are B'nai Reuven. Who is the hero at the end of Sefer Bami Bar? Pinchas ben Elazar ben Arona Kohen. Very nice. So, so far we've seen the Rashbam substantiated that Mishael and Al-Safan are going to play a role later, so we have to mention them. And that Pinchas is going to play a role later, so we have to mention him. Doesn't mention that Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, Tamar all have to be mentioned because they're part of the same scene with Mishael and Al-Safan. So we understand now that this genealogy is giving us those members of Levi who are going to play a critical role in the later story of the Torah and presenting them to us now. But that still doesn't explain why it's here. Why do we need here, punct, just before we get rolling with the Tziat Mitzrayim narrative, 
Why do we need to be told, oh, these are Levim you're going to see later on in, in the story? And it still doesn't explain the Reuben and Shimon introduction. But notice that I've included Datan and Aviram twice already in this presentation. There's somebody else I want to mention here, somebody who really doesn't get a lot of press for very good reason. Who did Pinchas kill? Who did Pinchas kill? He killed Kozbi Bat Nesimidyan, Kozbi Bat Sur, right? And he, who else did he kill? He killed Zimri Ben Salu Nesivet Abla Shimoni. Who was evidently at the forefront of the Moabite whoring that led to that terrible plague and the death of 24,000 people just before we're about to cross over and into Eretz Yisrael. It's Shevet Shimon. Look at Shevet Shimon's numbers at the beginning of Bamidbar. They're among the highest, down to 22,000, which is as small as Shevet Levi. It's the smallest Shevet by the end of the road. And evidently, this is where many of them were killed. What is the biggest challenge to Moshe's leadership? So you can have a contest. You could say it's Korach. Datan and Aviram. By the way, there's Korach. And Ubnei Korach Lometu as part of that story. And so we understand why Korach's mentioned in our piece. You could also say it's Datan and Aviram, which is, of course, from Ruvain. You could say it is Benot Moab, which is led by Zimri ben Salu and the rest of Shevet Shimon. But you could argue that perhaps the biggest challenge to Moshe's leadership took place not in a not in as confrontational a manner, and certainly not in a belligerent manner, but when B'nai Ruvain and B'nai God come to Moshe and say, we don't want to cross. We're basically seceding from the nation. And finally, they reorient things so they're not seceding from the nation, and the other of they have to come in as the vanguard. Now step back and notice, where does Moshe get all of his challenges from? All of his challenges had come from inside Shevet Levi, Shevet Ruvain, and Shevet Shimon. There's nobody in Shevet Yehudan that challenges Moshe that we see ever in the Torah. Nobody from Yisachar, Zvulun, or Don, or Naphtali. We don't know who Eldad and Medad are from, and I don't even know that that was a challenge. We don't know what Shevet they're from. But when there are individuals or groups that challenge Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership consistently, they are either from Reuven, Shimon, or inside of Shevet Levi. So let's roll back and look at our parsha with fresh eyes. Watch how it starts. Hashem tells Moshe, go speak to Paro, and he's going to let B'nai Yisrael go. And what does Moshe say? B'nai Yisrael don't listen to me. How will Paro hear me? Aras Fatim will leave aside. And then what does Hashem do? Hashem commands Moshe to go to B'nai Yisrael and to Paro and get B'nai Yisrael out. And then what do we hear? Here's who Moshe Rabbeinu has to face. That's what this is a list of. Look who Moshe Rabbeinu has to face. He has to face people who are going to say, I'm from Reuven. What am I going to listen to somebody from Levi? I'm from Shimon. What am I going to listen to from Levi? I am from an older child in the Shevet Levi. This is presenting not people who in the future are going to be important. That's secondary. This is presenting the immediate challenge that Moshe faces when he comes to liberate B'nai Israel 
and persuade them to follow him, persuade them to unite behind him. This is who he has to face. And therefore, we start with Ruvain, because Ruvain is going to be a source of some trouble, both individually and as a Shevet, Datan and Aviram, and their henchmen, and Shevet Ruvain when they want to secede. Shevet Shimon is going to ultimately lead to the biggest catastrophe after Chetam Raglim, which is Benot Moav. And within Shevet Levi are going to be the seeds of challenge to Moshe and of sorrow to Moshe. The death of Nadav and Abihu, the role of Mishael and Al-Safan, and, and of course, Korach. So what I'd like to propose is, is that the list that we see towards the beginning of this parasha is not a genealogy per se. It is a presentation of the challenge to Moshe Rabbeinu as he's being commanded to go to B'nai Israel after the first failure that we saw at the end of Parsha Shemot, and setting him up, presenting, to, presenting for us kind of a scope of what his career is going to look like and the challenges that he will face throughout his career that will all emanate from those who feel that they have inborn inherent rights over Moshe Rabbeinu, over his Shevet, and over his family. And these are the challenges that he's going to face, and that ultimately, he, uh, as we see every step of the way, he faces successfully, literally, Be'ezrat Hashem, uh, but, um, but challenges nonetheless, and I think that that's what this, the point of this list is.